When you think of Jesus, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What images, what thoughts, what stories? We've seen him depicted in so many different ways throughout the ages. How would you describe his voice? What does it sound like? What does he look like? How would you describe his personality? We're going to be looking at Jesus today, which is not a new subject, a new topic. We've been on on this study in the book of Mark for about four years now, uh, in and out, and we're going to continue this morning looking at Mark chapter 11. But before we do, let's dive into a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, what a great song we've heard. Uh, We've sung some magnificent songs this morning. Some ancient, some new, all speaking of of our King, your greatness, what you've done for us, Jesus, your death on the cross, and more than just your death, your conquering of death, your conquering of sin, the empty tomb, the resurrection, the events that we'll be celebrating next month. Lord, today today is almost a preview in some senses of, of what lies ahead as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday. And I pray that as we examine your word together, that you would speak not only to our heads, but to our hearts and our hands, that we may be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. My Lord, my rock, my redeemer, my savior, my king. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for 2,000 years, people have depicted Jesus in so many different ways. And we're going to continue today just to describe Jesus, to look at what the Word of God says about him. I I wanted to just kind of share a few different pictures, just visual pictures uh, of depictions of Jesus. Some of these are going to be familiar to you and and maybe some not so familiar. I don't know that anyone has been painted more than Jesus. I don't know that there's any more sculptures done of any person than Jesus. Jesus. There's been more books written about Jesus, more stories written about Jesus. He is unquestionably the most important human being that ever walked the face of the earth. More lives have been changed and transformed. More followers of of his have taken place. Uh, Some of these pictures look pretty normal, maybe some unusual. This is Jesus in the snow. I I thought that was, I I came across that this week. Um, I guess this is Safari Jesus. I, I, I'm not exactly sure. It's kind of an interesting one. Uh, th- this one, he, he looks kind of scary. This one, maybe even more scary, just the big eyes and all. But we're going to look at what God's Word says today about Jesus. You know, as a boy, I always envisioned Jesus as, well, as, as being really nice. Really nice really nice. I don't, as a kid, I, I wondered, would he ever kill a mosquito? Would, would he ever raise his voice? Would, would he ever get angry? And somehow, for most of my childhood, there was one story that I, I guess I, I, I forgot about. And we're going to look at that story today. This is angry Jesus, but maybe not in the way that you think. See, we're told in Scripture that Jesus 
our perfect example of what it means to be human, that he never sinned. And this is really, really important. If Jesus sinned, then his sacrifice on the cross for our sins would have not been possible. It required a perfect sacrifice for sins to be taken away. And so Jesus lived a perfect life for about 33 years on this planet. And therefore, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul, Peter said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And John said, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. It's really important to understand this. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. He committed no sin, no wrong. So, as we've been looking in Mark, in chapter 11, we're actually, for those of you keeping score, we're skipping over a passage we're going to look at in two weeks. We call it Palm Sunday. And it'll fit nicely in the story in two weeks. So we're jumping ahead to Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Jesus is with his disciples. They were in Bethany outside Jerusalem. And it says in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Have you ever been hungry? We've all been hungry, and what do you want when you're hungry? You want food, of course. This is a reasonable situation. Jesus knows hunger, too. Some, some people think that Jesus was God, but not human. Others have said, no, he was human, but not God. And I'm here to tell you, family, and this has been debated and discussed for the last 2,000 years, Jesus was fully God and fully human. And I don't know that I can explain that. I'm not even sure I fully understand, but understand it, but it's one of the most important principles, especially as we're studying Jesus. Because the two most important questions in life, I believe, are who are you and who is God? Jesus is fully God and yet fully human. He's one of three members or persons of the Trinity, one God and three persons. It's a pretty magnificent mystery but a powerful reality. Jesus is hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. April is not the season for figs. It's actually typically May. So Jesus was a little bit early here. And Jesus, you should know, you don't pick apples in March. You don't pick pumpkins in December. You don't pick figs in April when the fruit doesn't arrive until May. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, it's kind of an interesting story. It's not actually a very nice thing to say bad things to a tree. I mean, granted, he's not talking to people, but he's talking to this tree. And, he, and he's basically cursing this tree, saying, because you're not providing me with fruit when I'm hungry, may you never ever produce fruit again. Or at least that's what it appears to be on the surface. Remember, Jesus never sinned. Yet this is a moment of conflict, perhaps a moment of anger, at least frustration. This is not the type of thing that Mr. Rogers would ever do. But to truly understand the account, we need to back up a little bit. Why would Mark share this text with us, this story with us, about a fig tree. In our culture, figs are not very popular. In fact, 
the only time that I can ever even think about figs. You know what I'm thinking? Fig Newtons. How many of you like Fig Newtons? Yeah, I've, I've always been a fan of Fig Newtons. I almost bought some yesterday. Maybe I should have. Be a nice snack right about now. Well, anyhow, in the Old Testament, fig trees, first of all, fig trees are very popular in the Middle East, not so much in Toledo, but in the Middle East, they're very popular. And in the Old Testament, the fig tree was sometimes used as a symbol for the nation of Israel. Now, one of the challenges that we have in reading the Bible today is that it was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. In fact, there are passages of the Bible that were, were written to particular people, to particular churches, to particular groups of individuals, to particular nations. The Bible itself was not written to us, but it is written for us. Now, the Bible is actually not a book. It's a library. And if you don't understand this, you're going to really struggle because, see, you approach a book differently than a library. When you open a book, you expect that, that there's, there's some common literature. You, it'd be weird if you're reading a book and all of a sudden it goes from like a story to scientific facts to poetry. You'd be like, what kind of book? Like, I go to the poetry section of the library for poetry, and I go to the, to the science section for the textbooks, and I go to the story section for the stories. See, there's a, this is actually 66 books. It's a library of 66 books. And we have to understand the big picture. We have to understand what we're reading before we just dive in. And this is one of the problems that people have had for, well, for a long, long time. People say, well, it's, it's my interpretation of the Bible. Well, look at what this little verse says. Oh, well, there's this thing over here. And as, as you all know, the Bible has been used, or I should say misused, abused, to justify all sorts of things, from slavery to oppression of people to, in some cases, outright murder. It's not the Bible that's the fault and the problem. It's the misinterpretation, the misunderstanding, the abuse of the Bible. So how in the world are we supposed to understand it? Well, you're supposed to listen to me, and I'll explain it perfectly to you, family. <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed. I'm so glad you laughed. Because I'm not the authority. God's Word is the authority. But we have to be careful how we understand. Uh, you may say, well, if it's, why is it so complicated? Well, some of you spend hours and hours studying football teams, and, and you spend hours and hours studying how to do certain crafts and, and video games and all sorts of, like, people devote all sorts of energy to all sorts of things. And then, oh, well, just give me 30 seconds of the Bible, and I'm good. And this is a, this is a big library. And it's important for us to, to read it, to study it, to understand it. And part of it is to understand the context. What's going on? What's actually taking place? The context of this story, of this narrative, what Mark is trying to tell us, involves the nation of Israel. That's why he talks about the fig tree and takes note of this. The nation of Israel, for hundreds of years, had been chosen by God to be his, his special people, and they wandered and wandered and wandered and wandered, both physically and spiritually, away from the truth. Over and over, throughout 
the Old Testament, we see the people wandering from the faith. And so the context of this, before we even get to the rest of the story, the context is that this is really a parable. The tree looked alive, but it was actually barren. Israel, as a nation, looked alive. Its, its religious leaders looked very impressive. They had fancy clothes. They did all these fancy, highfalutin things. But inside, they were corrupt. They lacked faith, and they produced no good fruit for God. Like modern Christians who have Bible knowledge but demonstrate no love for others, they were spiritually barren. See, Jesus confronts loveless religion. And I know, again, you're saying, it's just a tree. You're going to see how this unfolds in a moment. But Jesus is really confronting loveless religion. And he will pay a very dear price for confronting this loveless religion. For as most of you know, these religious leaders were deeply offended by his words, so much so that they plotted to kill him, and they were very successful in their quest. We'll come back to the fig tree in a minute. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, this is definitely not a nice thing to do. He is full-blown furious. But why? Is Jesus about defending his rights? Is he standing up for his own selfish interests? Is he practicing and protecting that which matters to him? Is he offended for his own sake? He says, as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. See, Jesus' concern is for his Father's glory. He cares about his Father's glory. We often say around here, you were made by God, you were made for God, and you were made for God's glory. Now, Jesus was God, but he came to earth on a mission from his Father, who is also God, and his concern from day one was fulfilling his Father's mission. The temple had been desecrated by religion, by economic interests, and by all sorts of things that had nothing to do with God and his glory. Jesus' concern is for his Father's glory, his Father's house. He says in the book of John, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Oh, I wish that could be true of my life. That everything that I do is not for myself, but for for my Father's glory. That's not true, family. I'm a very selfish person. I do things that meet my needs and my preferences and my desires that bring me pleasure. But ultimately, we were made by God, for God, and for His glory, not our own. He repeats the thought in the very next chapter. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's so critical to understand this. In the book of John, this phrase, who sent me, is spoken by Jesus 23 times. He was on a mission from God who sent him to do a particular work. That work was finalized on the cross in the empty tomb. But of course, he had his whole ministry, three years of ministry with his 12, equipping them to change the world ultimately. 
This is all part of his mission, the mission of the one who sent him. Now, it's one thing to be angry when someone offends us, but it's something else entirely when we're looking out for someone else. We should be angry, family, about sex trafficking. We should be angry about racism and injustice, murder, child abuse, abortion, domestic violence, and all these other evils that plague us. We should be angry. We should be upset. Some of you were raised to believe you're always supposed to be nice and never get angry. And I'm I'm here to tell you that Jesus got angry, but he never sinned. What typically happens is we get angry and we sin. Now, as I was studying and preparing for this, this message, on two different occasions this past week, I encountered people that were talking about how, particularly in the last six months or so, but beyond that, people have used this passage to justify their own hatred and anger on social media, their desecration of people, their, their attacks on people, saying, well, Jesus got angry, so I can just blast people away. May it never be. Jesus was not blasting people for his sake. He was protecting the will of the Father. And parenthetically, there is no perfect political party. Ooh, I said that. Okay, so just saying, there's a time to be angry, but in our anger, we must not sin. And most of the people that I've seen on social media that are angry are sinning. (laughs) They have an agenda. It's about their own self-interest and propping up their own stuff. So yes, we need to be angry about injustice in our world. We need to speak out for those who can't speak for themselves. But that's not an excuse, and this passage is not an excuse to just do whatever we want to do because we just were angry and Jesus got angry, so we're going to get angry too. He never sinned. And we have to make this point. And let me just add to this. The issue at, at hand was not so much just what was taking place. There's this bigger picture related to the fig tree about the people of Israel abandoning the temple, the true meaning of the temple, about the people of Israel abandoning God the Father. Jesus is defending the institution that the Father set up for worship, for adoration, for the things that we are gathered here to do this morning, to praise our God. See, Jesus was not always nice. The temple was constructed for the worship of God and it becomes something of a shopping mall for people to sell overpriced sacrifices. The way it worked is you had to, at Passover time, you had to bring in a perfect, a perfect unblemished animal. We talked about this earlier. It required a perfect sacrifice for sin. So they had to bring this, these perfect animals and a lot of people, they had traveled from far distances. Their animal could get hurt on the way. They could get stolen, all these things. So oftentimes, as they would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, it was there that they would purchase a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And well, just like today, some some people got an idea in their head that they had a really good audience, a good market, and they could inflate the prices, and they could do all sorts of corrupt things to make a buck. It's amazing how making a buck can lead us into some really dark places as humans. We've been talking about money and sex and power and how those three aren't necessarily bad, but they can be used very poorly. They can lead to all sorts of corruption and all sorts of sins. 
The Passover was big business for these merchants. And we all know what happens to people when they lose their jobs. We know what happens when when jobs are lost, when people attack a particular industry. Jesus is calling out this industry. He's trying to shut down this business operation. And some people weren't too happy about it, needless to say. It's not a pretty picture. He taught them these passages from Isaiah 56-7 and Jeremiah 7-11. And by the way, part of the importance of this, a little historical background for you. Notice it says, a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was designed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Only the high priest could go into one particular place, the Holy of Holies, which was protected by a veil. He could only go in there once a year. There were certain other sections that were reserved only for Jews. And then Gentiles were welcome in the outer courts. Well, this is where the merchants were selling. And Jesus is basically saying, you're kicking out all the Gentiles. You're not creating space for my people, Jews and Gentiles, to pray to God. You're excluding the nations from knowing and worshiping God. Yeah, there was some merchandise things, there was some some business things, but there was a broader thing. Jesus is saying, you've totally missed the point on what the temple is for. Religion became big business. And then I want you to see what happens. This is so common in in the narrative, so common in Mark's gospel and all the gospels. We have the religious leaders on one hand that can't stand Jesus. And then we've got the crowds. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him because we know that murder is an acceptable form of of nothing. In fact, I think it's in the top ten. Thou shalt not murder. I mean, these are the religious leaders. I can't tell you how many times I've read these passages and I, I feel this extra weight being a religious leader myself, thinking if Jesus were to come today, back 2,000 years ago, it would be me and my people that would be going after him, trying to kill him. That's sobering. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they were looking for a way to kill him because they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. They were threatened. They felt insecure. He was stealing away all the headlines. And as we know, he's also like healing the sick and doing all these other things too. Everybody was flocking to see him and they were stuck thinking, what about us? Radical envy and jealousy. As I said, Holy Week is right around the corner. We're going to gather here, by the way, on Good Friday with the tabernacle down the street. They're going to join us at 6 p.m. on Good Friday. It's going to be a wonderful experience as we remember the pain and the suffering and the passion of Christ. And then two days later, we're going to have two identical Resurrection Sunday services at 9 and 10.30. And let me just say to all of you, you really can't appreciate Easter without Good Friday. So I really encourage you to be here on Good Friday, if at all possible, to feel that pain, the anguish, the suffering. I know we all like happy, happy, happy. Let's eat the Easter eggs and sing and be happy. But you can't fully appreciate the resurrection without 
the crucifixion. So what have we learned so far? Jesus confronts loveless religion. He's willing to confront injustice. His agenda is not his will, but the will of the Father. He is not always nice, but he's always right, and he's always righteous. After all, why would someone kill a person who's just always nice? Listen to the words of N.T. Wright. He says, The purpose of the temple was to be the place of sacrifice. Hour by hour, worshipers came to the temple, changed money into the official coinage, bought animals that were guaranteed perfect for sacrifice. And here he says, if you bought an animal from some, brought an animal from some distance, there was a good chance it might be attacked on the way and so no longer a perfect specimen able to be sacrificed, as I mentioned, and brought them to the priests who completed the temples, the killing and the offering. The sacrificial system and with it the reason for the temple's existence depended on money changing and animal purchase. By stopping the entire process, even just for a short, deeply symbolic moment, Jesus was saying more powerfully than any words could express, the temple is under God's judgment. Its reason for existing is being taken away. The temple, it was the most epic place in the entire Jewish world. It was where God resided in the Holy of Holies behind that curtain. It was sacred space, and yet it had become contaminated by people lusting after money and power. N.T. Wright adds this. He says, The sacrificial system was therefore doubly redundant. It was part of the temple system, which had come to stand for the wrong things. It was part of the signpost system set up by God to draw the eye of the climatic achievement of Jesus himself on the cross. But our story is not over. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out, to this, out of the city, and thus ends their day. Day's over. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. The tree was not withered the day before, keep in mind. It was, it was just merely out of season for fruit. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Why did it wither? Remember, this is a picture of God's judgment on Israel. If you want some text to look up, Isaiah 34, 4, Joel 7, Joel 1, 7 to 12, Amos 4, 9. It's a picture of what happens when people lose their faith in God, putting it instead into religion and money and power. And then Jesus says, have faith in God. The object of our faith must never be power or money or religion or politics or people or possessions or anything else that we would call idolatry. Our faith must be in God and God alone. Our faith must be in God and God alone. And Jesus says these remarkable words. He says, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. See, we've been given great power and authority as followers of Jesus. Now, this does not mean that God is a genie in a bottle who is ready to just do whatever we want him to do. Keep in mind, the context of this and all of Jesus' ministry was about his glory it's about the Father's glory. See, it's about praying for His will to be done. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Jesus taught us to pray. So this, this does not mean that if you have enough faith, you'll be rich and happy. Rather, Jesus is stating that the power of prayer, when we seek first his kingdom instead of our own, will be limitless. When we set aside our agendas and pursue God's will, we can be confident that it will be done. And he furthermore says, whatever you asked in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And again, some faith healers have taken this verse out of context. Prosperity gospel preachers have taken this out of context. Said, if you just have enough faith, you'll be rich like me. Just be sure to give me lots of money. This is not a promise that God is a genie and you're always going to be happy. In fact, Jesus himself, just days later, was going to die on a cross. He's going to suffer worse than any suffering you or I experience, physically or spiritually. Like the prophets of old, Jesus is announcing God's judgment upon those who have lost their first love and have corrupted the entire Jewish faith. See, prayer is all about praying according to his will. Yeah, you can tell him what you want, and you should tell him what you want. That's one of the things I love about prayer, is we can be real with God. We can be honest with God. We can tell him whatever it is is on our heart. But then we say, like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And you know he's going to accomplish his will. We get in alignment with God's will. He's in one place, we're another. Prayer is about doing life with God. It's about conversing with God. It's about experiencing God in such a way that his heartbeat and ours are in sync. That we first seek first his kingdom and then it's done. And then Jesus says this, don't miss these words. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Tony Evans puts this so well. He says, unrepentant sin blocks God's power. And I think it's really important for any person that's trying to justify their anger and lashing out upon other people on social media or otherwise on this story to realize that Jesus follows this story talking about forgiveness. See, Jesus offered forgiveness to those money changers. He offered forgiveness to the merchants and the religious leaders. In fact, the very people that days later were, were killing him, not trying, but were successful in killing him, he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some of you have been praying prayers, and you're like, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? It's a good prayer. It's a really good prayer. I think this would bring you glory. This would be, this would be really, really good. Sometimes we have unrepentant sins that block God's power in our lives. This is why confession is so important. And I have to tell you, the Catholics really have it on the Protestants. I'm not saying they do it right. But it seems like as, as, as Protestants, there's, I don't hear a lot of confession. I hear a lot of gimme, 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 and some praise and thanks thrown in there. But, but what about confession? If we confess our sins, if we confess, he is faithful and just, will cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness, will forgive our sins. If we confess. When's the last time you, you truly had a time of confession before God? 
Maybe tears involved. I mean, weeping, intense remorse over your sins. You know, it's <laughs> having more than one child. Some of you have had this experience, you know. Tell your brother you're sorry. Sorry. I wonder if that's the way we, we approach God sometimes with our sins. Sorry, God. Okay, bless me, bless me, bless me. Unrepentant sin blocks God's power. We all sin. It's what we do with that sin that matters. Are we going to celebrate it? Are we, are we going to ignore it? Or are we going to really be remorseful about our sins? Agree with God how we've wronged him and bask in his forgiveness? Do we hold grudges against other people? Do we rationalize our failures? And then there's one additional verse that's found in some manuscripts and not others. Some of your Bibles are going to have verse 26 and, or verse 26 and some don't. You're like, wait, why isn't it in my Bible? We don't have the original manuscripts of the scriptures. The Bible is just too old for that. I can tell you, the Bible that you have is extremely reliable and has gone under more scrutiny than any book in human history, or library, as I said earlier. But some manuscripts have this verse, some don't. It ties in. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So, so where are we going with all this? What's the big idea? What's the big point? I know I've been accused in my life of being too nice at times. I know that sounds like one of those backward compliments. You know, what's, what's your greatest weakness? I'm too nice. Yeah, you are. But there are times when we need to confront, when we need to confront, but always in love, always with a, a spirit of caring for the other person, always an attitude of forgiveness and making that available. See, Jesus... He, he was pretty angry in the temple and he was angry with the fig tree, but there was a bigger picture that he was wrestling with and that was the fact that God's glory had been corrupted. And I don't think you have to be too creative to see in our culture the ways that God's glory has been corrupted. Ways that Jesus' name has been taken in vain. Yeah, sometimes as a curse word, but sometimes misused in other contexts as well. One thing I used to tell my kids when I disciplined them, because love is not always nice. I said, I love you too much to let you do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to punish you, which doesn't feel nice, but I'm punishing you because I love you. I love you too much to see you do this behavior again and again. And we know that God disciplines his children too. Sometimes the things that we experience are the result of our sins, our rebellion against God. In a similar way, See, God disciplines us because he loves us. He cannot tolerate sin. He would bring judgment upon the Jews for their idolatry and their abandonment of the true purpose of the temple. Family, it's so easy for us to, to get distracted in our culture. We've, we've seen in recent days so-called Christians in embracing nationalism and misogyny and partisan politics and sexism well, covering up racism and abuse and immorality, all these things, religion and politics and sin and power and money, it's, it's, it's an ugly mix. See, at the dawn of the Christian church in Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that's a picture of the kingdom of God. It's radical. 
It's countercultural. It's selfless. It's others-centered. It's God-centered. It welcomes everybody, and it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus that we're studying throughout this series. He wasn't always nice, but he never sinned. And he always loved well. He lived a perfect life, a perfect example for you and I to follow. It's Jesus that we worship both for who he is and for what he's done by being the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, offering forgiveness to those who repent, turn away from their sin and follow him. And yes, it's Jesus that we worship, our King. We worship him in song. We worship him by devoting our tithes and offerings, by putting our money where our mouth is and saying that he is God and not the money that we earn. Yes, we worship when we share good news with those people around us, when we love our neighbors well. We worship as we study his word together, as we pray together, as we do life with Jesus and as we do life with one another. It's all part of worship. Anything that you do that brings honor and glory to God is an act of worship. And so today, we're going to close with just another opportunity, another way that you can worship the Lord by declaring once again who He is, His character, His identity, to remind ourselves and to thank Him for who He is.